When I was 21 years old, my parents uh, had their sixth child, um, and uh, I, it was awkward, obviously, finding out that my parents were having another kid, but um, I was hoping for a brother, and I uh, found along the way that my mom was going to have another girl, my fifth fifth sister, uh, and um, so after she, my mom went through the pregnancy process and all that, uh, she um, had a little girl, and my dad called me. I'll never forget it. I was at work and my my uh, boss uh, told me to go to the phone. I took the phone call and it was my dad. And he said, hey, your your sister's been born. Uh, she's healthy and she has Down syndrome. And then he hung up the phone. And uh, I remember having a lot of uh, emotions happen. And I actually uh, thought it was terrible news at first. Um, and I realized I knew nothing about Down syndrome. Uh, except for I remembered a TV show called Life Goes On, and there was a, a character named Corky, and that was about it. And uh, that was 21 years ago, and um, my sister, her name is Chloe, and is a huge part of my family. Love her to death. Uh, she texts me every day to, to tell me that she's thinking about me and things like that. Um, but that started a journey for me um, to better understand disabilities, to better understand what the Bible teaches about disabilities, um, and to really kind of develop a theology of disability. And then when I became a pastor, I started really thinking about the question of how churches could better engage, welcome, and not just welcome and serve, but I also started asking questions about including people with disabilities uh, in the church and their families. Um, and, you know, I served in a church for about 11 years where we had multiple people with Down syndrome. We were really blessed to have uh, a couple that was married that both had Down syndrome, and they were super involved in our church. In fact, uh, Joey uh, was was his name, and uh, he was our best greeter, best, best welcomer, and uh, the resident uh, clapper for all worship. And we just loved him to death, and seeing my sister in church has been wonderful, too. And so, um, so I'm really excited about this episode of the Sacramental Charismatic. My name is Luke Garrity. Uh, I'm a pastor theologian in Northern California. Uh, and this podcast is really an intersection between pneumatology, ecclesiology, missiology, and sacramentality. But I also have been um, having a lot of conversations for the past uh, month and a half, uh, kind of diving into different subjects related to uh, Black History Month here in the United States. Um, this month, March, is Women's History Month. So I've been having a variety of different female perspectives from a variety of different theological traditions. Uh, but today, I am very, very honored, very, very pleased to have Dr. Louise Gosbelt. Hopefully, I pronounced your last name correctly and you yes. are in australia <laughs> correct absolutely which means you have a really sweet accent it's the best <laughs> accent all every american in the world wants to have your accent i just want to let you know it's just that they can't always understand it uh that's true i in, even our emails you've had to explain a, a couple of your <laughs> terms <laughs> yes. the we're very we're very good at abbreviating words in Australia. So I understand that Americans find us quite strange because we call McDonald's Maccas, for example. So you go down to Maccas. Um, that's just the normal thing that you would call McDonald's here, but uh, apparently not over there. Yeah, we're like, where are you going? Um, <laughs> hey, so I'm, I'm really honored to have you uh, on the podcast. Uh, you're a New Testament scholar. 
you have written a ton on today's subject. Um, just looking at your your academia website address, which uh, if you're watching this, you can see the link right there. If you're listening, you can get the the link uh, on uh, the descriptions. But you are at the Australian College of Theology. Uh, you're a faculty member. Uh, you're a big deal, uh, and you know that's maybe maybe awkward for you to to be like, yes, I am, but you are. Uh, just looking at your papers on the subject of disability, you've written a, a, ver a lot of a lot of papers on this subject, um, and I'm intrigued to have this conversation. Uh, I discovered your work uh, in a book that you uh, contributed an article to, or an essay, I guess, a, a chapter called "Making Sense of Motherhood." Um, a number of years ago, we were both trying to remember, like, what is the title of that book? And when did it come out again? But great article. And so I remember reading your chapter and I was like, OK, I need to follow more of, of this person's work. And so I did the thing that scholars uh, try to do if they have an academic institution that they can use their library, got online, found some papers, read them loved them. And so uh, very, very pleased to have you on today. Um, but before we get into the subject of disabilities in the church, um, you know, maybe what are a couple of things about yourself uh, that you, um, you know, think are important for people to know about you um, in relation just to knowing you better, but also maybe why this is a passionate subject for you? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I lecture in New Testament, as you said, I'm also the Dean of Students at the college that I work for. So my primary role is in supporting students uh, and uh, helping them through in particular challenging times. What I get to do and what I love in my job actually is that I get to put in support programs for students with disabilities as well. So I feel really passionate about theological education and making that accessible to a, a wide range of learners. I think all academia unfortunately has this ivory tower approach and mm. I think theology has that as much as any other area. And I think if we feel strongly about God's word equipping people and wanting to give people access to that and know it better and put it into practice, then we really need to debunk this idea of, a, of an ivory tower for theology. And so I'm very passionate about wanting to educate in a way that uh, caters for students with different learning abilities and different learning mm -hmm. styles. So to implement that um, within my classroom and teaching and to be able to direct others into how to do that well is something I'm particularly passionate about. Uh, so like you, my uh, experience with disability started through um, a family member as well. My husband um, was one of three boys in his family and his in-laws decided to um, foster some children and uh, a few of them came just for a few days or a few weeks temporarily uh, and a little baby came to them at two weeks old who also had Down syndrome. So he was given up by his birth parents. They didn't want to have a baby with a, a disability. And uh, so he came originally to stay a few weeks, which rolled into a few months, eventually a few years. And uh, finally, my in-laws adopted John as part of the family. So he was really a huge influence on my husband, Mark, who is now um, a principal at a special school here in Sydney. So that was it, it was just a hugely life-changing experience for him to encounter disability and wanting to make a difference uh, in the lives of people with disability and to be an advocate for people with disability who so often, especially people with Down syndrome, don't have voices uh, within our community context. So that was always really important for him. So when we met, when my husband and I met, I was studying theology. I'd never really thought about disability before either. So um, having 
John coming to our family was the first time I thought about, you know, theology from a disability perspective in any kind of way. But that didn't really uh, cement in my mind until I finished up my theological degree. And at the end of that year, the head of the theology department said to me, well, obviously a good student. I want you to think about going and, and doing an honours year. So for me, that would have meant a short 12 to 15,000 word thesis. Uh, he said, I want you to go away and think about what you want to write for this topic. And I can vividly remember thinking, what on earth can I write about that 2,000 years of biblical scholars haven't already written about, you know, a thousand mm. times over? But interestingly, it was only a couple of days later, I had a phone call from my mother-in-law and she was in tears on the phone and she said that something had happened in her church and she wasn't sure what to do about it. So they'd been part of their church community for about 15 years, I think, at that point. And uh, John, my brother-in-law, was in his teens and he'd been involved in their church community with welcoming people at the door, handing out bulletins, carrying in candles for liturgy and so on. But a new minister started at their church and the minister rang my mother-in-law and said um, that John wasn't allowed to do these things anymore. So he told her that someone with an intellectual disability, like someone with Down syndrome, doesn't have the capacity to understand or respond to the gospel, so can't really be a Christian, and so should not be allowed to represent the church in any kind of way, even if that's just welcoming people with a smile and a hug at the door on the way into church. And so that was really that first moment that I really started to think, well, what is a Christian approach to disability? If we can legitimately argue that there is a portion of the community who cannot be saved, you know, sorry, Jesus came to save everyone except this little group of people over here, um, that doesn't make any sense to me. So what can we do with this? And so I decided that's what I was going to do for my honours thesis. I literally thought I'd write the thesis, move on, never think about the topic ever again. And yet here I am 20-ish years yeah. down the track, I suppose, because I was so impacted by um, what I read and what I was studying and the people I met. Uh, I, I just couldn't let it go. I felt like this was something that I needed to keep working on. And so mm. here I still am. I'm glad. Uh, I mean, just, just for any of our listeners, because uh, you, um, you are not just like interested in this topic. I mean, you are an actual um, scholar in this field. You are doing work that's legit. Uh, I, I can't say that enough. Like you're like the real deal. Uh, you have some, so just some of the paper topics, uh, the, the titles, um, you have right here, uh, universal design for learning in Christian higher education, inclusive practices for students with and without disability. Uh, this paper, I have not read this yet, but I cannot wait to, cause I just saw it right now and I was like, all right, why do I have I not read this one? But rebooting the post pandemic church, fostering inclusion for people living with disability. Uh, I just had a conversation with some pastors the other day about, about that, trying to figure out what does it look like to be a church in a global pandemic uh, and then trying to reach, you know, people with disabilities. So uh, another paper, a disability reading of Paul's body of Christ metaphor in Romans 12, three through eight in first Corinthians 12. Um, I mean, you have numerous papers that are focused on disability. So, I mean, you know, we're really um, I think anybody listening, um, you, you know, to this podcast and just myself, I mean, we're dealing with somebody who's who's done a significant amount of work in this area and has thought a lot about 
this topic. And then also, I love how you just shared, you know, it's not like you just have these theoretical ideas, but um, you're involved in it on a personal level because you have family members. But then I also know you've done a ton of work in local churches to help also help uh, other churches become more more, uh, I guess, inclusive as well as um, not just to say welcome, but hey, let me show you how you can be involved. And so I'm really excited about about this podcast. So uh, for our listeners, this is, as I was telling you, the most planned out podcast I have ever done. Uh, <laughs> it's been great. So we have a we, we have a kind of a, a map for this episode of the podcast. Um, and we're going to go through a number of things to, I, I think in some ways, would it be safe to say we're going to somewhat develop a theology of disability over the course of this conversation and then end with some very practical ways for churches to be more inclusive? Is, is that a good way to say this is what we're mapping out? I think we're setting the bar high, but I think we can do yeah. it. We're going to do it all in two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So let's start with this. Uh you know, let's start by defining disability, you know, like, like help us move to an understanding of this issue a, a bit. You know, how do you how do you define the word disability? Do you just think about that in cognitive sense? Uh, where do you see mental illness or emotional? You know, I hate to use the word illness. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but there's emotional um, challenges that people face. Mm -hmm. uh, there's phys physical disabilities. Help help us do that. It's a really good question. It's it's really a tricky area actually defining disability. It's it doesn't come into a nice little package with, you know, a couple of sentences that come together to easily define disability. I think one of the really helpful definitions that does exist is one that the World Health Organization put together. And I'm just going to read it briefly because it's it, I think it's a good overview. So it says here, disability results from the interaction between individuals with a health condition, such as cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, and depression, as well as personal and environmental factors, including negative attitudes, inaccessible transportation and public buildings and limited social support. What I really like about the World Health Organization definition is they recognise that there is a, a connection between not only the experiences of the physical body or, um, or the mind in terms of mental health challenges, but there is also this social phenomenon that is part of that as well. And so that means that there might be social stigma associated with people with particular conditions or there are difficulties in accessing the other things in society that able-bodied people can take for granted. So getting on transportation or accessing education and so on. So it's it's uh, complex because it is something about the physical body and mind in connection with what happens in our society and our relationships and interactions and so on. We also talk in disability uh, about models of disability and that's something that's been really helpful to think through because uh, I guess traditionally the approach towards disability has been very negative and it's something we refer to as the medical model of disability and so much of our society is still shaped by the medical model of disability. That means when you... Um, you know, you look at someone with a disability, they're, they're broken, there's something wrong with you, we need to fix you. And if you're unfixable, then, you know, are you really worth our time? Are you really worth government support? All of those sorts of things. The medical model says, 
yeah, essentially you're broken. And so eventually they developed what's called the social model of disability. And the social model of disability wanted to reframe discussions about disability from there's something broken in your individual body to saying actually there's factors in our society um, that make it difficult for someone with um, a different body uh, mm. to be able to negotiate the world that they live in. And so the social model of disability is really important for a lot of disability advocates. Um, people feel very strongly, especially people with physical disabilities, mm. uh, about the social model to say, if our world was set up differently, mm. then there wouldn't be any issues. You know, if everyone could use sign language uh, and our society was set up uh, around people who had hearing impairments and were deaf, then someone is less disabled by their condition. And so the social factors of disability are really vital as well. So the social model is about moving past just recognising that individual concept of disability and thinking about it more broadly. Um, I guess the reality is, though, sometimes those things can be tricky to, to define because I think there are elements within the body both and within uh, the social structures of our society as well. And I think that's mm. why I like the World Health Organization definition, because they say it really is this complex situation of these things coming together. So mm. people can function really well in society with a disability, and that's absolutely fine, but other people can really struggle depending on where they live, what their access is to healthcare, to education, to transport, communications, whatever it is. If you've got a great supportive community around you, uh, then you are less disabled by your particular condition. So it is certainly complex in that way. Um, there's a lot of different things that are are happening when we talk about disability. So there's things, as you say, we something like cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, yep, we mm. get that that's in the disability category. But it can be harder for us, for some people, I think, to think about things like mental illness as part mm. of that definition. But I know the um, Americans with Disabilities Act and the Australian Disability uh, Act as well, they, um, both, you know, definitely include mental illness as part of those definitions because the reality is you can still be disabled by those conditions. There's certainly social stigma that happens in relation to those conditions uh, and it can make it harder for you to access the things in society. So it certainly ticks all of those boxes that, um, that come up with the definitions of disability in the World Health Organisation and so on. So unfortunately, it's not this nice straightforward definition. It's complex yeah. and it's one that we constantly grapple with. The label of disability itself, some people really struggle with. It's a negative mm -hmm. word, disability. So sometimes people have tried to come up with other labels. Should we be talking about, um, you know, some of the things that were in vogue for a while, physically challenged, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of language was popular for a little while because people were trying to find other language that worked. But at the moment, I guess disability is still uh the the terminology that is most common yeah that, that's no, i think it's really helpful uh to think about um you know because i think as a you know my what i've seen the, the development of language i mean it's happening in every every sphere right politically uh ethnic diversity conversations gender conversations but uh, you know the common like mental retardation was a concept that for a long time was what people and and certain people still use that that term. But I when I my sister was born, um, the R word became a really bad word, yes. and 
Uh, and even now, like I know when people are using the, the word, you know, the phrase mental retardation, it's like, ah, you know, like cognitive because I think I kind of was coached into cognitive challenge to yeah. describe uh, describe uh, my sister more. Um, but so I think that that's really good and helpful. What you're saying there is, is that it's a lot more complex and also um, giving people the, um, maybe the uh, relationally the authority to self-define a bit and to mm -hmm. um it's like in the u.s there was a, a time when um you know the the wheelchair accessible sign was this wheelchair that was sitting there and there was a movement for a while to have the wheelchair like moving i don't know if you saw yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and we so we use that uh in our church community to 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 i just we just liked that that picture because uh one of our administrators uh was was wheelchair bound and you know so she was like i'm not bound i <laughs> so it's really really helpful um what do you think a little bit I, I want to tease this out just a little bit more the 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 line between mental illness or an, an emotional illness you know because i think there even within biblical theology there's a lot of uh you know discussion between whether you can separate you know, your, the, the, the life of the mind and emotions and the tripart and, you know, all the different, but like just on a, on a level of people who struggle with, um, anxiety, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, sadness, uh, depression, you know, those are, those tend to be in Western, um, Western approaches to be more of emotional feeling orientated things. Um, and they're less, you know, uh, like bipolar or some of the other, um, you know, things we would say are, are mental. Although bipolar, bipolar is interesting too, because it does cross the line between those a bit too, because if you talk, there's anger and then there's, ha you know, mm. how do you think about that? Or is, do you think it's not necessarily helpful to parse those out? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I, I think uh, they definitely all sort of come under that broad definition of, um, you know, mental, uh, mental health challenges or mental illness, depending on the terminology. Some people talk about mental ill health now rather than mental illness or mental health challenges um, so that it doesn't sort of carry that illness label, which is, you know, mm -hmm. something you already referred to there. So there, again, that language is shifting within that space as people are trying to think through mm -hmm. it because it's huge it's hugely broad between someone who may have depression and can take medication uh and you know can function as well as uh other people without depression in society versus mm -hmm. someone with significant mental health challenges with bipolar or something like that uh and i i think but across the board i think there is a similar stigma that exists, you know, for uh, all of those conditions. And unfortunately, I still see that in society. I still see that in the church um, where, um, yeah, people are, are nervous about the idea of someone being on a church leadership team or committing to a ministry if they define themselves as having kind of any kind of mental illness. Mm. Uh, so it's, I, yes, I see the benefits in wanting to separate, but I guess I'd want to advocate for the the whole category across the board to say it's an mm. area that we don't know enough about and we should be working harder as broader community and as church communities uh, to be understanding and accepting and recognise that there are um, 
you know, whether there's chemical imbalances or whether there's been trauma that's impacted someone's mental health issues, mm. that uh, this is a significant area that definitely can disable people in their ability to connect with society, access the things, go to work on a daily basis, make a commitment to being, to, you know, Bible study group every week. So just because we can't see that visible disability doesn't mean it's any less disabling for many people who experience those mental health challenges. Wow, that's really that's really helpful. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about why this kind of matters for the church. You know, so as a follower of Jesus, um, you know, we both are part of traditions that, um, you know, have a high priority on on the Bible, um, and you know, wanting to and wor worship matters and people matter. Um, you know, so like let's talk about why this matters for the church. Um, and, and I think even as you were talking about about um about you know kind of the, that that line not wanting to parse out these different disabilities or different challenges that people face i was just thinking about how you know there's a lot of studies coming out right now due to the due to the global pandemic um covid-19 crisis um of mental illness uh depression suicide rates uh, mm -hmm. i mean these things are our, our I, one paper I read recently was using the word skyrocketing, and it was mm -hmm. uh, globally alarming. Um, you're you're seeing that from every um, demographic. It seems like it's not just uh, you know middle aged people. I mean, there's young people. Um, so this is definitely something that we're the churches are going to have to be thinking about. You know, going into this post pandemic world is how can we how can we care for people? And and just today I, I um, was having this conversation with another pastor about how this is a space for churches to be able to enter into, to provide um, support and ministry and, and whatnot. But just for, for somebody who's listening that maybe uh, like my, my first 21 years of life, I feel very insulated because mm -hmm. uh, again, even down syndrome, like I knew it was a thing and I had seen the TV show. Um, I don't know if you remember that TV show, the American show. Yeah. yeah. Like I love that show, but I didn't really know anything about Down syndrome. And so I felt very um, like, you know, like, like we didn't have Google then either. Like I couldn't Google it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so why, why does this matter? You know, like what are some of the statistics out there that, that exist in relation to disabilities. Um, and, and I guess even, you know, maybe to the point is like most people are going to, if they're doing ministry, they are going to come in contact with people who are facing disabilities. Like help us understand why this is such an important topic for the church to deal with right now and to, and to, and to face head on. It's a really great question because, um, you know, so the World Health Organization say there's over a billion people worldwide with disability. You know, globally, it's one in five people, one in five. That's a huge statistic, wow. actually. And when you, so when you realise that and you look around your church communities, is that number actually represented in our church communities? And I'm sure for most of us, it's probably not. Recognising there are people with invisible disabilities, but also saying, I don't think our church communities reflect the, the, that percentage breakdown of what we see in our broader society within our church communities. So I think it's important for us to ask the question, you know, what are we doing or what are we not doing that the church doesn't always um, end up being a place where people with disabilities feel comfortable? And, and I think we'll probably get there, but I think there's a few reasons why that might be the case. Uh, I guess one of the things that I find frustrating is that people can do a whole theological degree, you know, plus a post-grad 
and never encounter the word disability, have never thought through any kind of disability issues at all. And yet these are fundamental issues to all sorts of areas of theological investigation. How can we think about the role of the body uh, without having understandings of what our expectation of a normal body or um, you know, an unusual body is? Uh, when we talk about the body, we all have a concept in our head of what that body is, but we don't actually unpack that. We don't explain it or talk about it and its implications for disability. When we talk about anthropology, you know, the image of God, uh, that concept of disability is so strategic to thinking about the image of God if we're stuck in an idea that that image is something that has to do with cognizance and intellectual capacity, for example, then there's really important discussions to have around disability there. If we're doing a class on New Testament and we're reading through the healing narratives in the gospel, mm. how do we think about those passages in relation to people experiencing people with disability today? So I've often heard people say things like, well, the Bible doesn't talk about disability. You know, how can we do this? That's a 20th century concept. Uh, but it's amazing when you start to look how often disability is actually represented in the scriptures, uh, how often it comes up and how it taps into a whole lot of areas that we might not articulate, um, but do when we start to interrogate them a little bit, we realise we have these assumptions about you know, what the body is supposed to look like, what we think the Imago day actually is, for example. Uh, so there's some really important areas there. So I think we're untrained in theology, but we're untrained in how to pastorally care for a family who would be in your family's position, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, what were the church community like then? What were the church leadership like? Were there those people who still say things like, what did you do wrong that you had a child like this, mm. which still actually happens? What sin did you commit that you had a baby like this? Mm. Uh, I think we have to think through people's decisions um, kind of trigger warning but you know to think about issues like abortion as well i think mm -hmm. christians can be really hard line on this topic but then i've heard people say things like oh in the case of a child with a disability that's okay and yeah. the only reason you can think that is if you genuinely think that a baby with a disability is a mistake or an accident mm -hmm. or not actually carrying the same image of God that the rest of us yes, carry. Yes. So there you go. These are all these really important practical things that connect with our theology, and yet we don't mm. spend the time unpacking these issues from a, a theological perspective to think about disability. You just gave, uh, I mean, that was a goldmine of reasons as to why uh, people should take this stuff seriously. I mean, I think the, the abortion rates uh, issue with uh, people with Down syndrome is actually uh, terrible. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, um, it's very, and I know that's a controversial for some people and, you know, there's a lot to that, but, uh, it is, it is a truly astounding, um, you know, that that isn't a socially acceptable perspective in many ways. It seems so cruel, um, just to assume. And, and I think anybody who has somebody with down syndrome in their life, they know they, uh, you, I can see with my, my sister, for example, I can see the Imago day on her, like, um, she is very uh, capable of understanding who Jesus is, and she worships, and she participates in the life of the church, and she prays. Uh, my dad right now is is, uh, is has been diagnosed with cancer, and so every time we go and spend time together, she she lives with my parents, and we'll like pray, and she comes out, she lays hands on him and prays, wow. and I mean, it, it's crazy to me, you know, because 
But it's based off of, I think, what you're saying is a lot of fundamental misunderstandings and ignorance, you know, um, on the part of a lot of a lot of people. So I so I think this is really, really good to to dive into. Um, so and for anybody who's a pastor, um, what I think is interesting is is how, you know, as soon as you have somebody come into your church that is either has a disability or has children with a disability, um, I think you immediately realize how under-equipped and unprepared mm -hmm. you are to be able to offer anything, um, you know, and so I, I think that that's why this topic is so important for for church leaders and for people in churches to really think through about being able to offer more support. Um, so let, let, let me, let, let's move into the I guess developing a bit of a theology of disability based off of scripture. Um, you know, cause I'm thinking about how, what I remember, I've heard this a few times is, uh, is like, you know, first Corinthians 12, the weaker folk mm -hmm. and, and it's always defined, you know, well, those are them people, you know, it's, it's, it's not always been used a very, uh, helpful, um, and, but I, so on one hand, I think that that's been a, the case where the Bible get, can, can get used in a very negative or maybe a, not the best reading, which I know you'll be able to respond to now. But then also I think John nine has been a really helpful text uh, for a lot of people too, where, you know, you, there's people who, well, what'd you do wrong? John nine helps us flesh out uh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a response to that. So which texts are primarily formative or should be primarily formative for us when it comes to developing a theology of of disability like from the old testament and new testament what, what what would you say we need to use these texts um and dive into them a bit yeah i, I mean we've talked about it already uh the but the idea of the image of god i think is something that's vital uh to understanding uh and you know reminding us of the value of all humanity there isn't mm -hmm. someone who carries less of the image of god than someone else and yeah. I, I think you know ongoing discussions around the imago day are actually helpful because i think for a long time they were fixated on things like power and dominion these are the things that make us mm -hmm. Um, you know, God's image bearers. And I think that the idea of rationality and cognizance uh, has been a really important one of those as well. And so it does become this slippery slope of then saying, well, if someone um, doesn't have the same intellectual capacity as someone else, are they somehow, you know, bearing less of, of God's image? And I think that's problematic. I don't think there's anywhere in scripture that says um, that we even lose the image of God after the fall. You know, Genesis 9 goes on mm -hmm. to talk about you're not allowed to kill anyone. Why? Because human beings yeah. are God's image bearers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's definitely. Can I, can I just for a moment for be it. an American? I just want to be an American for a minute. Okay. Do it. Do uh, it. The slippery slope thing also cuts both ways. Is there's some really dumb people that don't have what you would call you know, a, <laughs> a cognitive disability, and I'm like, like, it, hopefully we would all agree that. Uh, and I'm being kind of facetious, but the point being is that it, it is a slippery slope. Like, where where's the line? Like, yeah. how smart do you have to be to be able to be? uh saved or to experience god's in breaking kingdom or i mean that is because uh, i was just thinking about you know in your situation with your family member for any church leader to say well you know we know that they can't actually know jesus it's a remarkably ignorant yeah. uh you know statement as well as fundamentally a problem when it comes to the bible i think you know so so you so you'd say uh imago day is yep, absolutely you need to really dive into what else 
Yeah, well, I was just going to say further to your comment then, it, it is also important you realise this slippery slope because the assumption of saying someone without intellectual capacity can't be a Christian or can't follow God, you know, the corollary to that is uh, people who are the most intellectual people in the in mm. the world are going to be the best examples of what it means to live the Christian faith. Uh, not sure that that actually works either when you think about it, you know. So, um I think, you know, we have these measurements of intellectual ability or physical ability that we want to measure in terms of are you disabled by those categories? But you think about, yeah, we don't stop to go, actually, character is what we need to be thinking about. How well do mm. people demonstrate God's character? Who actually is disabled in their character in representing God? But we're mm. fixated on intellectual capacity and physical ability as, well, sorry, you're somehow less broken or, or less mm -hmm. human. Yeah, so I think the Amigo day is really important. I think, you know, looking throughout Israel's history, you know, the story of um, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, really is about, um, you know, God's people being set aside in a way to love and care for one another that demonstrates God's character to people, God's kindness, his perseverance, his long-suffering, his commitment to sustain humanity despite our mm. sin. And there's so many caveats throughout the scriptures, you know, throughout the Old Testament of caring for those who are poor and marginalized, you know, not putting a stumbling block in the way of the blind. It's built into the legal code of the Old Testament to ensure that those who are marginalized and those who are weak are cared for within that community. So I think it's a, an, an essential part of that identity of what it means to be God's people, to be prioritizing differently to the way the world around us prioritizes. And I think when you compare you know, the Old Testament to other ancient Near Eastern texts uh, and treatment of marginalised characters, you realise how incredible it is in really setting that up to mm. say we have a responsibility to look after yeah. the widow, the orphan and those who are marginalised. So I think uh, it's yeah, inherent in the Old Testament. Yeah, diametrically opposed to the way that you read some of the other A&E literature where you kind of get the vibe where it's like, eh, if you, if you don't look and talk like us, you're going to just have to, you know, die or suffer and too bad you know, for you. Yeah, it is remarkable how the Old Testament sets up, um, yeah, patterns and principles and values and and laws that actually protect the the uh, humanity of, of mm. people who would easily have uh, been marginalized or or just left to die. That, that is a really good point. So the Old Testament yeah. uh, itself, just the narrative in the story of Israel contains a lot of framework that you would say is is helpful to think about the way we approach people with disabilities. I, I think I think very much so. You know, you think about, yeah, something like Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of mm. you, you know, to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your with our God, what does that look like? I think it, it looks like caring for those who are marginalised as well. When justice is bound up in the legal system that God puts in place, which is about making sure you can feed those who are poor, setting things mm -hmm. aside for the poor, looking after the marginalised, it's built into the entire legal system of the Old Testament to actually do that and, and to care for people. Um, yeah, so absolutely, I think there is definitely that responsibility that we have there. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think we definitely see that then being acted out through Jesus' ministry in the New Testament as well. I think we've, in terms of the gospel texts, 
It is tricky for us because our primary references to disability in the New Testament are the healing narratives. So I often get asked, well, what do we do with these as church communities? Because we can't all heal like Jesus did. So do they tell us anything? Um, can it give us any insight into the way that we should treat people with disabilities? If Jesus just healed people, okay, well, I can't do that. Oh, well, I have no responsibility to change anything in my church community. Uh, and I think it, it makes us have to reframe the healing narratives a little bit better, you know, really put them back into the context of Jesus was demonstrating that he was the Messiah. And so part of that healing, it's not necessarily saying every person with a disability wants to be healed, needed to be healed, um, which I guess is important for you coming from the, you know, the charismatic context that you're in, but it's this you're broader out, you're issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Sorry. I was like, you can't heal, you can't heal people. You obviously <laughs> need to tithe to my ministry, and I'll give you the gifting. Dang. Yeah. I'm an Anglican. Sorry, I have no idea. <laughs> you can be, you can be charismatic and Anglican. Okay. okay if I end up right. Anglican, I'm gonna be like that. So. Okay. Good. Okay. No yeah. worries. That's good. <laughs> I'll be, I'll bring, I come from I'll a charismatic. You know that I come from a charismatic background. Yeah, so, you're so, Hillsong. You know, I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. You know about things. <laughs> you were around. Exactly. You were around us Pentecostal charismatics, and you were like, "Oh, yeah, I'm gonna be Anglican. I'm gonna go over here. Yeah, I'm, I'm over here." I was gonna. <laughs> yeah, say, sure. yeah, I was gonna make some jokes, and I no, would just leave. Too many. Too no, yeah, it's, okay, too, yeah. it's too easy to me. We're gonna have yep. plenty of time because I'm gonna get. I want to get into the charismatic stuff in a minute here. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, so the the gospel. Uh, the gospels are challenging. Uh, when you're developing a disability, a theology of disability, because um, it, you may be inclined to only interpret those texts through the lens of Jesus came to heal yes. disabilities right now. And churches don't know what to do uh, with with the fact that we aren't Jesus and we don't have um, we live in this liminality, right? There's this liminal space, the, the tension of the you know, already the not yet kingdom is mm -hmm. real common language amongst us charismatics. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, what else? I mean, what else? How do those gospels, what do you do with them? I mean, you well, just kind of say, well, we have high Christology. Jesus <laughs> did some really cool miracles. <laughs> yeah, not I think so. I think there's a few ways you can go. I think, you know, they are recognising that these were people, so my my area is sort of historical biblical studies. This is where, um, yeah, where my PhD sits and really trying to understand the healing narratives within their ancient context. And I think there is, a, uh, you know, in my work in looking through the whole Greco-Roman context of disability as well as a backdrop to um the New Testament and looking through the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible as a backdrop, I think there is a recognition that in the ancient world there would have been a lot of people with disabilities because there wasn't the same kind of healthcare that we have in the modern world. You break a leg, that's it. You could end up with a, um, a disability for the rest of your life in a way that we don't have in the modern world. So historians interested in disability say there would have been a lot of people with disability who probably just got on with their life. They still farmed the land, had children, did whatever they needed to do. Um, 
And that would have just been a normal everyday occurrence in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. I think when it becomes an issue and the kind of people we see in the Gospels asking for healing are those who had no networks of people, no support, you know, networks around them, no family, no kinship, um, no friends who can, um, you know, help them or get them through life. So I think Mm -hmm. the kinds of characters we see are the most marginalised characters um, from, you know, the first century Judea really. So instead of thinking, oh, every person with a disability in that time was going to Jesus to be healed, um, recognising how widespread it was. And that I think when it became a problem was when someone had no family or no social network or there was stigmatising elements of their condition. So, you know, the woman with bleeding, for example, you know, you're unclean, you need to keep away from us. I think when it comes to those kind of stigmatising conditions and the lack of family in particular, these are. this is why I think you see so many people so desperate for healing in the Gospels. Mm. So it's not mm. everyone with a disability, but it's kind of this smaller portion. And that helps us, I think, start to rethink um, their desperation for healing. And it helps us to think, okay, maybe not every single person with a disability feels like they actually need a physical mm. healing. I went to South Africa a few years ago and I met this fabulous woman um, at a conference, big, big conference, big Christian conference, people from all over the world, the uh, Lausanne Congress on World oh, Evangelization. Yeah. And I met this amazing yeah. woman there who um, was in a wheelchair. And so you can imagine this broad range of different Christians all there. And she kept, she said to me eventually, oh, it's so frustrating because every time I go out to morning tea or lunch, I never get to eat because people just keep coming up and laying hands on me um, and actually, you know, waiting for me to be healed as they pray. So most people didn't ask permission. They just kind of touched her without checking um, that that was okay. And they assumed that that was the number one thing in her life um, Mm -hmm. that she wanted prayer for at that particular moment. And she said, finally, someone said to her, can I pray for you? What can I pray for? And she said, I'm having financial troubles. I'd really like you to pray for my financial situation. And, of course, their jaw dropped, expecting (laughs) that the number one thing she wanted healing for was to be out of the wheelchair. So there is an assumption, I think, from able-bodied people that every person with any kind of disability hates their life, hates their body, and this is the number one thing that they spend every day of their life wishing that they didn't have. Um, Mm. So it's important to recognise that it's a different situation for everyone and not everyone with disability now is in the same circumstances of, you know, the man at the pool of Bethesda who's clearly desperate or the woman with bleeding who sneaks up behind Jesus in the crowd. Um, we can't extrapolate that to every single person with a disability. Mm. That's that's oh, that's amazing. Really, really good. Um, yeah, because I, I think of, um, you know, what you're kind of talking about is setting those healings in their cultural context, right? And uh, I think I, I I can't remember where I first encountered this, but I, I, like the social rhetorical commentaries that became really uh, mm-hmm. well known amongst evangelicals because of Ben Witherington, uh, which I know people outside of evangelicalism were like, yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> but, uh, or Kenneth Bailey, Kenneth Bailey's, uh, yes. you know, I think Paul and Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. But there's yes. that whole idea of setting things in their context. And it's interesting with about healing. Um, I, I've, you know, numerous times read and also said that it's interesting how Jesus, some of those healings were about restoring people back to community. It wasn't just, you know, oh, I don't have this 
physical issue anymore. It was it was like they were they were able to participate in in worship to the same degree that other people could, um, things like that. Uh, so okay, we're gonna we're gonna get into um, some of the challenges with language and identity in a minute here, but we also have like the eschatological future promise texts, you know, where it seems like world's going to be good. You know, I, I, like for us in, in our, um, in our Eucharistic um, adoration and, and participation and worship, you know, there's an element where we're anticipating a, uh, a future meal, right? The eschatological mm -hmm. marriage supper of the lamb. And there's these pictures throughout Isaiah of, of happy times, no more COVID, no more masking. <laughs> uh, but also, I, I think it's very common for people without disabilities to assume that, you know, everything's going to go away. I mean, because I'm thinking of my dad right now. He's got stage four kidney cancer. Mm -hmm. He's having his kidney removed tomorrow. And, um, you know, the, the, the hope is obviously we, we're hoping for healing and for health care to work and all these type of things. But we also... Are, are, you know, as followers of Jesus, we have a hope that there's more to this reality than just what we have right now. Um, how do those texts, uh, should they fit into us developing a theology of disability? Like, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of G one of the texts I've heard um, used, not always the most helpful way, but it's like when somebody's born with a disability, it's, well, you know, in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that God's going to wipe every tear from our eyes and there will, everything will be okay. Good, good luck. You know, you're okay. Uh, what do you do with those texts? Or do you just, yeah. <laughs> typical Bible scholar, just, just specializing in Paul. Out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just go to Paul. No, I'm not in the Paul club. Um, <laughs> um yeah, can I just step back a, a moment, if that's okay? Sorry to hijack. I, I just yeah, want to go back to one passage first and then I'll come back to answer this question because I think it's really, yeah. really important. Um, just to agree with what you're saying about that idea of community connection and being reconnected mm. with the community. So, again, thinking about the woman with bleeding um, as a great example. So, you know, she's someone that I wrote about as part of my PhD. It's yeah. a really interesting story when you look at it because uh, in Mark's version, the version that I studied, you know, mm. the, the narrative starts off with her, you know, thinking in her mind that she wants wholeness is what she's looking for. In, in the Greek, sozo, that same word that mm. is translated wholeness or salvation. What she wants through her encounter with Jesus is sozo, healing, sometimes translated by wholeness or salvation. She touches Jesus' robe and she's healed immediately, it says in the text. So the bleeding stops. So she could have just gone on her merry way and her physical healing would have actually taken place. It's mm. done. Um, and yet, you know, Jesus stops the crowd and has this whole discussion with her that takes place. You know, who touched me? I think he knew very well who touched him, but I think he asks as a way of making her sort of publicly declare her intentions and her desire to be healed. Here's someone who would have been horrifically stigmatised because of her condition, um, but that stigma wouldn't have gone away just because the bleeding stopped because she'd had this condition for 12 years. But through the public announcement that takes place by Jesus discussing that with her allows, I think, this social restoration to begin to happen as well. And mm. I think it's interesting that in the text it says her bleeding stopped, but it's not until after this public discussion with Jesus that it actually says, you know, Jesus says to her daughter, your faith has healed or saved you um your 
so-so is used then after this kind of conversation takes place. So it's almost like there is a physical healing that takes place in the text, but then there is this kind of social restoration that begins through the discussion that happens with Jesus as well. Mm -hmm. So she can begin to be reconnected with her family, with the temple community and all of those sorts of things as well. Uh, so it's easy, I think, to kind of truncate that into just that physical healing. Mm -hmm. But that's a really brilliant story that shows it's not just about the physical healing. She was looking for wholeness, which I don't think happens until she interacts with Jesus and he starts her on this journey of being able to be restored to community. I think there's a real interest then, you know, tapping right back to what we were talking about at the beginning about the definitions of disability. There's something in the physical body or the mind, but there's also this social environmental issue as well. And so I love this story of the woman with bleeding in Mark 5 because I think Jesus is interested in both of those aspects mm -hmm. of the woman's healing, the physical healing, but that social restoration and belonging. And so I think as Christians today, we might not have the ability, of course, we should pray for people to be healed if that's what they want. Mm -hmm. But we can still do the second part of that even if people don't physically get healed. So we can still make our um, churches communities where people can receive social st uh, restoration and people can meet Jesus. So we mm -hmm. can still do that second part even if we don't have the power to heal and make that part take place. So I think paying closer attention to the gospel text and the healing narratives can help give us frameworks um, for how we go about addressing disability rather than just going, Jesus healed and that's the end of it. I think it's a little bit yeah. more nuanced than that. Yeah, no, I think that's really, really helpful. Uh, is in the same way that like continuationists and charismatics you know, have for a long time wanted to say, hey, let's actually go back to those texts um, and let's consider, you know, the implications of like Paul Paul and the gifts of healings, which is very mm -hmm. fascinating to me, the plurality of those words, which gets translated oftentimes as gift of healing, you know, but um, but we want to like stare at, we, we would say things like, hey, let's stare at the gospel stories and see what is Jesus doing here? And this, like we're called to continue the ministry of Jesus and healing is a part of that thing, you know, and so there's, I, I believe that there are supernatural, miraculous uh, healings that can happen, but there's. But, but I guess what you're saying is that, in the same way that a charismatic would say that, we would also want to say to the charismatic tradition, "Hey, let's pause and see that there's more going on than just, hey, you don't have, uh, you know, a bum ankle anymore, <laughs> or yeah. you know, you don't have this this uh, quote unquote disability uh, holding you back from being able to skip along the, your merry way. You now actually have been." Um, restored uh, in community, which fits into, I think, the Missio Dei, right? Like the whole idea yeah. of the mission of God being wrapped up in shalom, um, you know, wanting to have um, not just peace with God, but peace with your fellow, you know, neighbors, your your fellow uh, human beings. I think that's really brilliant. Um, what, what do you think about this, though? Not, this is not, I don't mean though, as in like, just to debate that whole entire point. Uh, I mean, like, I was just, I was just thinking about how one of the things that uh, the found were one of the early founders of the vineyard movement, John Wimber, who was extremely um, uh, influential in the church of England, actually in, in Anglicanism in the UK, um, you know, numerous scholars have said that um, uh, I heard one person say uh, that there was nobody more influential amongst Anglicans in the UK um, uh, above and beyond John and Charles Wesley than John Wimber. And there's many people who are saying that he, you know, he's very instrumental in like restoring mm -hmm. a lot of uh, the Church of England in, in, in England. So I don't know about 
because I know there was some controversy with you, uh, you Australian Anglicans. <laughs> you guys didn't like the charismatic stuff down there. Not you, but you know. Um, yeah. uh, so I heard Wimber one time um, speaking about the issue of of Jesus' conversations with people who who were going through the process of being healed, or you know, he would say things like, and he does this numerous times. He's like, "Well, what do you want from me?" Which is a very interesting question. Um, going back to your friend, uh, the person I should say you met uh, yep. in South Africa, who you know everybody keeps coming up to me, assuming that I just want to you know not be in a wheelchair, but I just want to yep. get my finances taken care of. <laughs> yep. Um, and so I think that's interesting because it allows the person you're trying to minister to 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 be able to kind of um, it, it, it's a very humane, it's a very relational way to do ministry. I guess is one thing we see Jesus modeling there. But something else he he uh, mentioned that I thought was very interesting, and 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 this is um, I'm thinking this from a pastoral lens. He he talks about how when Jesus would ask that to certain people, um, he also was they were having to wrestle with whether or not they actually wanted to be restored into community um, because there were like it, it, like for instance, there's some cases where it's like if I get healed right now, then I'm going to have to get a job. I'm going to have to actually you know pick up my mat right now and I'm going to have to go and enter into society and culture. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I, and, and his point was that, um, that not every person with a disability or who has a, you know, a need for healing, quote unquote, uh, actually wants it. And that goes into the, I think charismatics like really get excited about that. Cause we're like, Oh, faith. Oh, we're talking about faith now. Oh, let's get into it. But mm-hmm. I, but here's a thought I had just right now when you're talking about is if I'm pastoring people, the worst thing I can do is just have a um, have a, it's almost like a victim mentality for people mm. with disabilities. It's like, oh, I don't want to I don't want to challenge anybody or I don't want to like, you know, you know, maybe um, uh, speak in a provocative um, way that would would actually say, hey, you know what? You, yeah, you need it. You're going to have to get a job or, you know, whatever it is, because we do that a lot for for people without disabilities sometimes, you know, like if somebody we don't have a problem with saying, hey, listen, you can't can't do this anymore. You got to you gotta grow up. Mm. But I, I think sometimes with people with disabilities, my observation is that um, if you don't know somebody with disabilities, it's easy to view them through this lens of like they're mm. just victims and they're suffering yeah. and like. Uh, cause I see that with my sister. Like I tease my sister really bad. Like I'm, if somebody probably saw me with my sister, they would assume I was an abusive, <laughs> like, like, I just, but she's my sister and I love her. And I, yeah. and I also know my sister. And I don't know if this is true for everybody with down syndrome, but I've seen it pretty consistently is people with down syndrome are really good at teasing back. And also are like, she will always steal my chair. I, every time if I'm sitting somewhere and I get up, I come back and she's just sitting there and she's laughing. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, fair game. Uh, and I know there's a lot that I'm talking about right there, the intersection of a lot of things. But like, what are your what are your thoughts about a um, the idea that potentially part of the healing thing was also um, it was connected to the faith aspect, not in an unhealthy like you know uh, word of faith TBN style faith thing, but like there was a component to where it's like, hey, you do have you do have a responsibility as a human being to decide whether you want to get prayed for and healed and, or you might want financial provision or whatever it is. Uh, and then B um, how often do you think, or, or that's not even the right question. 
just comment on the viewing people as victims thing, because that seems to be something that it could be really dangerous for people listening to this podcast who are like awakened to people mm. with disabilities. It's a thing now. And now um, they may they may actually refrain from um, pastoring people in a or or, you know, serving them in the same way they would for other people. Like, I, I know there's a tension there. I, I'm not saying be abusive. Yes. <laughs> good. Be very clear about that. <laughs> Does, yeah. that, does that even make sense? Like, uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. No worries. Well, let's give it a go. Um, so thinking about one of the examples that you're talking about, uh, John 5. So another passage I looked at as part of my PhD. Uh, and that view was um, promoted by a lot of commentators, actually, that the reason that Je Jesus says to this man at the pool of Bethesda, do you want to get mm -hmm. well, is um, it's portrayed as, well, actually, he's just lazy. He doesn't really want to get well. He's, you know, had this disability for 38 years. He's just comfortable in in what he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, I actually really don't like that interpretation at all. I don't think it's a good interpretation of the text. It um, seems really mean. Uh, like when yeah. I heard it, I was like, I, was, I remember, and I love John Wimber, so, you know, yeah. God forbid I ever, you know, but I just was like, ouch. But at the same time, too, as a pastor, I could see how, with this, the uh, and I don't know victim mentality. That's the wrong way, but you get what I'm saying. How it yeah, can shape yeah. the way that you are unwilling to challenge somebody because of their disability, or it's almost like you treat them uh, less less than. I mean, that's the best way to put it. Than somebody yeah, who didn't have a disability. Yeah. So keep going. Okay, so you don't really, yeah. really like that. You're like, yeah. Eh. I, I think I think it makes sense that Jesus is asking the question of him because if he's been at the pool of Bethesda for, you know, for 38 years, the text says. Um, at the same time, there's these crowds outside in Jerusalem because there's a festival going on. Everyone else is at the festival. Everyone else who is able to go to the temple is out there in the city. It's it's busy. And yet here he is still sitting there, um, mm. you know, I, I think if he had any desire to go and do something, he would have been off and doing it. He's still sitting here kind of isolated. Um, assuming that isolation then, he probably has no idea who Jesus is. We're early in the narrative, chapter 5 of John, no idea who Jesus is. Jesus hasn't introduced himself. Um, so I don't think he realises that. I think it's a question of Jesus offering help. But I think his interpretation is, well, the only way I can be healed is I need to get in the water, which is why he says, I've got no one to help mm -hmm. me to get into the water. Of course, I yeah. want to be healed, but I can't get in there. Uh, so I think it's an answer that tells us he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know who Jesus, um, you know, what Jesus has the potential to offer him. But I think it also tells us about his social scenario. He's so desperate. He's waiting there at this heat you know, healing pool, hoping that the water will get stirred and he can get in there first, but everyone else, you know, gets into the water before him. So I think it's that conversation actually shows us his desperation more than his lack of desire to be healed is the way that I interpret that passage. Okay. Um, I think you wouldn't be sitting around at a pool for that many years. Um, you know, <laughs> that's a desperation, I think, there. If he had no desire, he would be trying to go and, I don't know, do something else or be begging where there'd be people who could give him money, for example. Instead, he's at a healing pool. You know, who goes to the healing pools besides people who want healing? So, uh, yeah. yeah, I just think that a reframing of that 
actually completely changes then that particular view. So again, not assuming, I think it assumes a lot to say, oh, we actually didn't really want to be healed or, and, mm -hmm. and then the problem is, as you say, then we do extrapolate that to people in the modern scenario. Oh, they don't really want to get healed because if they did, they would pray harder or longer or yeah. more faithfully yeah. and that's the case. Yeah. I think if we look at it as a story that tells us about desperation, the isolation of people with significant disabilities um, in, you know, first century Palestine, if we recognise that he had no idea who Jesus was, I think it changes the way that we might think about that narrative. It's also interesting, this is kind of an aside, but it's interesting how many times Jesus offers healing to people with long-term um, physical disabilities on the Sabbath throughout the Gospels. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that whole kind of rabbinic teaching of you couldn't heal on the Sabbath unless it was, you know, a, a mother giving birth, uh, someone was on um, the point of death, or uh, you're allowed to do circumcision if it fell on the on the Sabbath. You know, yeah. those were kind of the three things in rabbinical teaching. And yet Jesus very deliberately initiates healing, you know, on number of occasions on the Sabbath for people with long-term conditions. So part of that stating of the 38 years, I think, is also saying um, this, this was clearly not an emergency, and yet Jesus mm. acts and initiates that healing to long-term, people with long-term illnesses on the Sabbath as a way, I think, of disputing those rabbinical regulations about what healing is supposed to look mm. like on the Sabbath mm. and that people actually take priority over kind of these particular laws that yeah. have been developed. So I think there's there's it says a lot about, I think it says more about who Jesus is than it, what it says about perhaps the motivation of the man who's waiting for healing. That's mm. That's the way that I would approach that text. And that, that seems like to be a pretty, um, I mean, when you think about like the, uh, you know, Christotelos movement hermeneutics, you know, to like really see Jesus as the, not only the the model, you know, and the son of God and through all these different uh, Christocentric things, but really, you know, seeing him um, as, uh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, the model thing is a good, I guess, a good concept of it, but it's like, it is interesting how um, you can read into these stories and miss the whole point of the biblical authors trying to communicate to us about Jesus more than, mm. you know, um, do you have a comment? And I, I'm kind of skipping ahead cause we're going to come back to like, what is, what is it, what does it look for churches to do that? But I mean, do you have any comment on that? Uh, you know, cause I'm thinking of myself as a pastor, um, or any other pastor who, um, you know, has a heart for people with disabilities and, and can, it's almost like we're trying to say you need to view people through the lens of the image of God and you need to take yes. the disability seriously. Um, you need to be compassionate and empathetic. But I wonder if sometimes that could prohibit us or prevent us in some way to really like speak truth in love or um, like or even because it's interesting, we're, we're both saying you can see the image of God in human beings that have disabilities. Uh, the other theological thing there is there is a sin nature. I believe in sin mm -hmm. nature still. Maybe yeah. you uh, yeah. Anglicans have abandoned that <laughs> biblical concept. No, definitely uh, not. We have not abandoned it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, so there's there's this there's the other thing at work, and I know that that's kind of a it's kind of a touchy issue, you know, the sin nature and how it works within disabilities because the disability itself is not part of the sin nature in the sense mm -hmm. of like, I'm a sinner because I have, but you know, um, maybe we would be hesitant to 
to press into that um, at, from, from a pastoral. Does that, I mean, does that even make sense? Mm. I'm trying to like, I, I can't think of any examples because every example I have in my head is like, no, that's not a good example. Um, <laughs> but like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's a really good question. I guess a couple of things come to mind. I, I don't know if this is where your, you know, mind is going or not, or perhaps I, um, I'm off track. But anyway, I'll give you a couple of examples of things mm -hmm. that come to mind for me. I had a phone call a couple of days ago from a woman who's just um, started in the role of children's and youth minister at a at a church um, here in Sydney, and she's taken over from somebody else. And the previous person liked the idea of trying to include um, the teenagers with disability in their churches. Um, and what she did was actually kind of give all of these kids on the autism spectrum particular leading roles and gave them the mm. same status as leader as other um, as other leaders over that program. Um, the the problem is they don't actually have the right kind of gifts or abilities to do that job well. Um, okay. And so they hadn't really thought through. Um, it was it was sort of like in inclusion for the sake of inclusion means, oh, you can have whatever you want. Oh, if you want to be a leader, I'll just let you be a leader. Um, that's mm. what it means to be inclusive of these people with disability. Um, and so it was about, I guess, talking to this woman to say, I don't, it's not, we're not doing it out of, pity or sympathy, we, we want to mm. be inclusive, which means we look at everyone the same to the extent of saying, what are your gifts? What are your abilities? How can you contribute? Yes, this is a good area for you or no, it isn't a good area for you rather than just kind of letting them, um, you know, take up a role that maybe isn't the best place for them with their own gifts and, and skills. So I don't think inclusion then looks like letting people do whatever they want simply because they have a disability or or not ever talking about sin um you know and avoiding it because it's complex um these yeah, discussions yeah. about sin and disability the reality is as you say or you know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god you can't ignore the topic of sin just because it's complicated and bound up with disability i think we need mm. to be super super careful that we don't connected as like this one-to-one -one correspondence of you must have sinned and so you have a disability. I think that's really dangerous territory. But, yeah, um, yeah, you yeah. know, to, to start to say we are all sinners and we all need to repent of sin, you know, and some people have disabilities and some people don't and some of us, um, you know, will develop it in our lifetime and others might not, although statistically we will. Uh, mm -hmm. So keeping, I guess, this, those issues separate but still not being afraid to talk about what sin is, what repentance is, what discipleship is, what leadership is, um, not just ignoring them just because you're encountering a person with a disability because that's not treating them like you would treat other people in your yeah, church yeah. community. Yeah. I, I was just thinking, so I love what you said because it's like, hey, re, um, you know, no matter what disability you have or if you don't have a disability, what we want to do is we want to try to encourage people to live out their calling, their yes. gifts, and serve, right? Um, but I, I was actually, I thought of a good example of like the the naughty. <laughs> so I have a lot with my sister, but it's normally like teasing stuff. And it's like, it's actually not probably, well, it's not sin. It's probably me being a mean big brother, but uh we we had uh this couple in our or this this lady in our church community who had down syndrome and she uh she really liked she was married and she really liked 
um men though like she was very friendly like always wanted to hug it hug them and it was so cute because she'd be like oh you're you know like oh you got muscles and and she had this really great rapport with me like she loved me and she was very friendly but my wife she was mean to my wife all the time uh -huh. like this really weird like um jealousy you know it's just kind of funny and my wife tried so hard and it, it was like my wife was so nice and hi and and she's like what do you want? You know, it's so funny. So, um, in that situation, um, her family kind of was like addressing it, like, Hey, you can't, can't be nice, you know, but like from a pastoral perspective, uh, maybe if I wasn't the one who she was flirting with or whatever, you know, whatever, maybe, maybe that's awkward, but, uh, it would be like, maybe a way to do that could be to, to reaffirm someone being uh part like, Hey, we, you know, God, I just want to let you know, God loves you. You are so deeply loved, um, as a part of this community. I love you. We all love you. Um, you know, like to reaffirm that mm. identity um, in God and, and being welcomed. And then to also talk about, hey, you know, but this way you you treat um, me or somebody else is it's not what God wants us to do. And, you know, and, you know, I don't, I think that um, it's hurtful and, and to put it in language that's um, and I, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but it's like in the same way that I would talk to somebody else who has um, their cognitive abilities at a different place than adult it's like explaining it is also could be a really helpful way to do that. Is that a fair way to kind of look at this? I think it absolutely is. And, and yes, going back to exactly what I was saying is if, if that was someone without a disability, you would do that. Right. Yes. And so, yeah, you would absolutely do that. And so if we're truly about inclusion, then we have to do that same thing when it is a person with a disability, we don't just kind of let poor behavior or sinful behavior, as you say, off the hook, um, because that's not going to be good or safe or healthy for anyone in that situation. And mm. the experience that I have seen in working with people with intellectual disabilities or um, cognitive or developmental disabilities, I think that's the language that's used a bit more in the US than here. But, yeah. you know, I my experience is... Um, People will often ignore them in church communities. Uh, if they don't like something that someone says or someone stands too close uh, or, you know, invades your kind of personal space, um, they will walk away and, you know, they're not committed enough to that relationship to actually be prepared to put boundaries in place. And mm -hmm. so that's not actually... That's not healthy. That's not good for anyone to do that. And so we have a lovely, lovely friend who has an intellectual disability. He's in his late 20s. We've known him for about, I'd say, six years now. He was at our previous church. When we moved churches, he followed us to our new church, mm -hmm. even though it was further away. He gets on the train every Sunday to come out. Um, and he he's just enthusiastic and so he will often kind of interrupt when we're having conversations with other people and i watch people sometimes most people are really good with him at our current church but i've i've seen people where they um yeah they just walk away or they say you're so rude you interrupted <laughs> you know without mm. kind of patience and love and grace in the way they interact um and but we just say to him I'm just talking right now. Give me five minutes and then I'll come and find you and then we can talk about Marvel comic mm. books or whatever it is that he wants to talk about. Yeah. And he's absolutely fine with that. But yeah. it's just about having to put those boundaries in place or remember that um, you have to shake hands with people or, you know, at the moment you do an elbow bump or you do a fist bump yeah. maybe or you, you know, wave at a distance. Um, and he needs to be reminded of those things. Um, but 
to just kind of shun him or ignore him or to not do that is not, I don't think that's the godly approach. I don't think that's mm. a helpful approach for anyone because he he wants to learn and he wants to interact, but he might not always get those social things right. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think it's important. Sometimes I've seen people look at me if I say to him, hang on, give me five minutes, like I'm yeah. being rude. And I think, yeah, no, yeah. because I love yeah. him and I value him, I will go and find him in five minutes. Yeah. And then he loves Marvel comic books. So, you mm. know, he'll always say, can you read this part of the Marvel comic book to me? And he records my voice as I'm doing it. This is what's oh, important for him. And so I want to give him my time and my energy. But if I'm, you know, having conversations with other people after church, they deserve my time and energy as well. So yeah. it's about, it. you don't just let, um, awkward behaviour or bad behaviour go just because it is someone yeah. who has an intellectual disability. You have to deal with it um, in the same kind of way you would with other people, but making sure you're doing that, yeah, with love and respect mm -hmm. and understanding. I guess the blurry line I find is sometimes people assume things are sinful when it might just be yeah. things are socially awkward, you know. Yeah. Um, so someone might stand too close or might touch women perhaps and it's not that they're meaning to be sinful it's just they don't have the same sense of social etiquette as other mm -hmm. people might and and i've heard people get in trouble from church leadership or higher authorities um, people have complained about them um, thinking that they've done something inappropriate and they would be gutted to think that that is the case. Yeah, so I think it's right. helpful to actually go, okay, what was their intention behind it? Is it just they don't get the social cues? Yeah, that's another one. Oh, mm -hmm. I, they made me keep talking to them. They wouldn't let me go. That's okay. Just say I need to go and that's all yeah, right. That's you know, right. but yeah. they might not get those subtle social cues that we use. You know, if you talk to someone on the phone and you say, I'll let you go now, you know, which we know means... I have to get off the phone or yeah. I want to get off yeah. the phone. Social cues. Um, yeah, that's right. But that other people yeah. might go, no, it's okay. You don't have to. I'll keep talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and people can interpret that as being rude, but it they can just miss those social cues that are not explicit and they're not taught to us in school or whatever. We mm. just learn them. If you can't learn those, then people can perceive you as breaking social yeah. etiquette or even sinning. Um, when it could not be someone's intention to do that perhaps mm -hmm. at all. So doing that, I think, with care, with love, with grace, with understanding, which all comes from relationship, if you ask me, you know. Yes, yes. I think if we were greater, if we had a greater dedication to building relationships mm -hmm. with people, um, then we would know people's heart and their attitudes yeah. better and we wouldn't get these those things as mixed up as yeah. perhaps we do. Well, yeah, I mean, wouldn't it it'd be super awkward if you're like, uh, I don't really know you, but I'd like to pasture you and tell you what you're doing wrong. Like, that'd be like, like, like what? Exactly. I'm not exactly. coming to this church anymore. Uh, so, exactly. okay, so what I heard you say is, uh, in a sense, we're reaffirming, like, there is permission. I mean, people have permission to... Uh, to pastor and to lead and to shepherd and to care for and to do the same thing you would for anybody, whether they have a disability or not. Um, uh, and then secondarily, to be really sensitive to very uh, thoughtful and use wisdom and discernment to understand if there's things that are actually, quote unquote, sin or whatever, versus because um, I, I thought of uh, Asperger's or uh, forms of autism, you know, there are social um, social uh, awkwardness that can happen because people just are not picking up on those social cues and it's not mm -hmm. at all an intentional, I'm trying to harm you or wrong you. So I think that's really good. So that's great. Um, Especially too, when 
I, okay, so here's a story I heard from a local church community. There was a, an older man um, on the autism spectrum as part of a church community who's incredible with numbers. So mm. if he gets told any piece of information with a number in it, he can remember it. And he ended up, he was uh, frustratingly roused on by church leadership because apparently he was introduced to a girl in a church community and he had met her parents once and he remembered the day that got married. And so he said, your parents got married on such and such a date and um, this girl said that can't be right because that was after I was born um, but it, it was actually right yes I know so it, oh. you can imagine the repercussions of this right so awkward. this girl yeah. yeah awkward so he had no malintent at all mm -hmm. it's just he has this number he has this mind for numbers no intention of upsetting anyone was just stating a fact but ended up this girl was upset. Um, she was okay about it, but I think the church leadership were really angry that he'd said something he shouldn't have said and he had no idea why it was inappropriate. All he'd done is say, I met your parents and this is the date they got married. Yeah. Like, and even if you, I mean, in that case, let me just say, even if you didn't have a disability, what would be wrong with that? Like, hey, I remember when your parents got, got married. This is yeah. the day, you know? Yeah, that's, I know that, that's right. That that family have kept the secret. That's their issue. It's not exactly. the issue of this guy with a disability, you know. <laughs> yeah. But this was like, yeah. I want to. I want to talk about honesty and uh, <laughs> <laughs> trust. <laughs> yeah, precisely. But you know, that's a legit situation that actually happened. Yeah. And in that case, you know, it it, it was one of those instances where he had no idea what he'd done wrong. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, he and I don't think he did. He was just saying something that he had in his head, but people because he wasn't able to intuit that she was, you know, 27 and he, the parents had only been married 26 years or whatever it was, he couldn't intuit that there was a disconnect there and so yeah. said it anyway that mm -hmm. people were were upset about that. Um, that's that's yeah. interesting you say that. That actually makes me think about how we actually need a better theology of sin. Uh, and this will be, you know, probably for a, n another rabbit trail, but it really is <laughs> because when I when – I, um, I have had the opportunity to represent uh, the Vineyard Movement uh, as part of the Roman Catholic and Evangelical Dialogue. And it's fascinating to me because the evangelicals, we're like all over the map on everything. You know, like we need like 18 hours to decide if we what we agree on and what we don't agree on. And the Catholics <laughs> probably just sitting there and they're like, yeah, we have we have a position on this. We've had one for 1500 years. I'm like, ah. Um, but what I've realized is that their theology of sin, even though there's some pretty big differences between Protestants and Catholics in a lot of significant areas, but they've really thought out to the point where we're all kind of like, I don't know, the, the you know, the venial, not, what is that about? But inside of that, it's like we really haven't thought a lot about sin sometimes. We just see it's all because you hear all the time, all sin is equal in God's eyes. Mm -hmm. But anybody who's read the Bible is like, well, actually... Uh, yeah. Jesus seems to in, indicate that it's not all equal and there are also uh, in different consequences <laughs> to to our actions. And so I, I think about that with, with our kids, you know, like when your kids do something we would say is wrong, whether it's, I mean, I, we don't use the word sin probably all that much. I know you Anglicans do because you guys are just so happy about using that word, but <laughs> Uh, like <laughs> I'm just kidding. we like I'm just kidding. to point them out all the time. Yeah, I should just mention, by the way, that I use the Book of Common Prayer every single day. So, like, I'm <laughs> I'm not I'm not anti-Anglican. Okay, I'm, you're, I'm you're an honorary you're an honorary I'm, Anglican. I I always tell people I'm the most Anglican non-Anglican that you will ever meet. <laughs> um, 
but uh, like when we when we talk about some of these social uh, or you know mistakes that people make when with our kids, we don't we don't jump to the like con- condemnation and you know making people feel like they've totally failed. And so I just really like what you've said. Um, we uh, so I want to get controversial now. <laughs> Because we haven't so far. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Everything we've done so far is easy. We all agree. Uh, let's dive into the language of disability a bit. So I initially reached out to you because I was trying to come to terms with some theological things. And uh, I, I had the um, privilege of having Dr. Amos Young as a professor. Uh, and it's funny when we, when we were talking at this conference one time, He's like, oh, that was right after I had gotten my PhD. I was like 12 or you know, whatever it was. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, oh, I didn't, you know, he, I really enjoyed his, uh, his uh, systematic theology courses. And later on in life, I um, kind of followed him a, a bit, you know, and he became kind of a who's who in the Pentecostal scholarship mm-hmm. world uh, of, you know, guys who are really doing um, uh, work that's, um, I think outside of Pentecostalism, you know, there's a whole host of female and male scholars right now that have been really doing a lot of work that's widely read and widely interacted with. Um, so he wrote two books. The first one I read is called the Bible disability and the church, a Mm -hmm. new vision for the, of the people of God. And the second book that I've read is theology and down syndrome, reimagining disability and late modernity. So I read them. I've also read some of his numerous scholarly articles on the subject, and I love his work. Um, I think he gets a lot of things really, really right. Mm. But as I emailed you, I was freaking out a little bit because uh, Amos Young talks about how people will maintain. This is my simplistic way of saying mm. it. And I'm going to ask you to kind of give a, sum- a summarize the whole thing, but. Sure. He maintains that people will will keep their disability into the eschaton. I mean, you know, so my sister who has Down syndrome, when we're all in heaven, and I know we're not going to heaven because I read N.T. Wright, but when we're all <laughs> in the future, whatever yep. we're doing, uh, we're in the new creation, the new 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 heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem's come down. Uh, all those tears have been wiped away from our eye. There's no more death. When that happens, um, my sister will still have down syndrome and that'll still be who she is. And, um, I am, I don't agree with it. I wanted to find out from you if I was crazy, maybe everybody who reads the Bible (laughs) thinks that. Um, and so I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Like, what are, you know, what are your thoughts on that? If you could maybe summarize Amos's uh, Dr. Young's uh, position. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, maybe what are some of the strengths of that too? Because there are, I think, some really good um, strong points that would help us get to a better um, value for the Imago Dei, mm-hmm. um, yep. people with disabilities. Uh, and then maybe give us some pushback as to why you like you would differ on that um, that position or why why we should perhaps not hold to that view. And I know that's a lot, but I'm so excited about this part because I'm going to tap in every <laughs> single post. I'm like, what's up now? And maybe he'll come on my podcast and, you know. But. That'd, that'd be great. Well, I'm sure he'd um, do his own work uh, greater honor than I can do, but I'll I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. I love Amos Young's work and I've been fortunate enough to meet him on a few occasions and I have a chapter in a 
volume on disability that he also has a chapter in and he has done so much great work in disability theology. It's fantastic. Uh, but this is a huge area in debate and discussion in disability uh, theology at the moment. So the kind of technical terms are the retention theory and the elimination theory of disability. Uh, and so this idea of is disability retained or is it eliminated in, in the new creation? And I think from, you know, my understanding of reading Amos Young's work, um, it's a pushback into this long-term assumption. I, you know, I think you alluded to this earlier on that uh, in the future kingdom, disabilities will be eradicated is the general view. Um, so don't worry, suck it up, deal with it in this lifetime now, but don't worry, everything will be fine. Uh, and I think that there's been, you know, through the, the social movement of people with disability and a reclaiming of disabled identity, people are uncomfortable with that idea or some people are uncomfortable with the idea of disability being completely eradicated, that it's so closely connected to their sense of self-identity and who they are, um, that they're not excited or happy or celebrating the idea of disability being eliminated in the future kingdom. And I think that's part of where Yong comes from. Uh, so he would argue, so he has a brother with Down syndrome, he would argue that that um, something of that would be retained in the future kingdom. Um, but the things that make it disabling in the world are um, would be eradicated. So if there's um, the, the disabling parts of that would be gone, but the parts of Down syndrome that would make um, the person, you know, his brother who he is or your sister who he, uh, she is, sorry, um, her character, her personality, um, wouldn't be the same if you removed the Down syndrome is what Amos Young argues. And so something of that has to be re retained in the future kingdom for her to have any kind of continuity between who she is on earth and who she is in the future kingdom. So for that reason, Young would argue, yeah, whatever the disabling features are mm. will be healed, but whatever is linked to character and identity will be retained in the future mm -hmm. kingdom. What I think is helpful about Yong's approach is it makes us rethink disability and take it seriously within this lifetime. It makes us not be so quick to jump into, oh, don't worry, you'll be healed in the future. You know, mm -hmm. suck it up now or whatever our attitude is now. Because I, I think sometimes we want to minimise bodily and human experience and we focus, I just can't wait till Jesus returns and everything's fixed rather than mm. actually we need to deal with our lack of inclusion here on earth right now. Yeah. So I think I, I see part of Jung's motivation as wanting to challenge people to say, if you think this is part of someone's identity long term, perhaps you'll be more um, willing to act on that now and not just see it as something that's going to go away. So we need to take inclusion more seriously in church communities today, which I really, really like about what yeah. he's saying. Um, a lot of people talk about Jesus, the, the scars or the marks of the, the crucifixion being on Jesus' body after the resurrection. So this is a big one that's talked about mm -hmm. in, in academic circles around this. Mm -hmm. So Jesus retained the marks or the scars or the wounds, depending on where you stand on this definition, you use a different word there. But some scholars would say, well, if Jesus still harried, carried the wounds of the, of the crucifixion on his resurrected body, 
isn't that some kind of evidence that something of our bodily experience in this lifetime will actually Mm. be retained in our resurrected body? Other people would say, actually, they're just scars, not wounds. And so maybe their scars carried over, but that's completely different to carrying your disability over into the future kingdom. So there's this kind of huge debates in this area. But I also find equally as problematic, there's a couple of articles by a guy called Gould, which is on eschatological healing. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's how I I first kind of like got into the debate. I was reading Ah. a a response or a review of uh, Amos's young, because I remember when I read his work, I was like, Wow, because it, it seemed like, um, and I don't mean to cut you off. I want you to jump in. But no, no, go for like it. He's he's borrowing a lot from, um, from like, I guess sociologists or um, disability thinkers. He's taking their, um, so he's he's doing this like interdisciplinary approach. Like yes. he's doing theology in conversation with the way that, and this is a people outside of the theological biblical world are talking about disability is kind of borrowing some of their language and some of their methodology too, it seems like to develop this theology of disability that um, is that inaccurate. That's a pretty close to what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. Obviously, this is, um, you know, a very on point topic, this idea of identity in in current discussions in terms of all sorts of areas, in terms of ethnicity and gender and and everything. And, And it is as part of disability as well. And so instead of that, that embarrassment and shame and shunning that able-bodied people have done to people with disability. There is a wanting to reclaim that identity, you know, a, a disability pride um, that, you know, that some people talk about to say, actually, this is so much a part of who I am. I cannot um, be something else in the future kingdom without this as part of who I am. And so mm. some deaf people I know would say, I look forward to being uh, able to sign with Jesus in the future kingdom, mm-hmm. for example. Their assumption that they're not actually missing out on anything um, by being deaf. And so why is that something that would need to be changed in the future kingdom? Or, And so I think one of the things that Young ultimately argues is if you feel like your disability is such an important part of who you are, essentially, to put it in layman's terms, you know, God takes that into consideration with whatever you will end up Mm. with in the future kingdom. Mm. Uh, I guess the problems that I have with that are that um, it's such an anthropocentric view. It just seems like such a human perspective on what our bodies will look like in in the future kingdom rather than a God-centred view of what that will actually look like. So we Mm. can't imagine ourselves without this as part of our identity but just because we can't imagine it doesn't mean it's not a possibility when we're these teeny tiny limited human beings in comparison to God. So to me, I don't find that a particularly compelling argument. Um, but what, what I do think, so the Gould, argue, Gould argues in his articles on eschatological healing, he says quite strange things on the complete other end of the spectrum though. Yeah. So he yeah, says yeah. things like, if you can't tie up your shoelaces, um, in this life, well, then, of course, that's a disability that would have to be healed because the future kingdom is all about kind of perfection and wholeness. So if you can't read or you can't speak or you can't tie up your shoelaces, then that absolutely has to be healed for you to be in the new creation because that's what perfection and wholeness and completion would look like. But I actually find that argument completely bizarre as well because I think, well, if the, if the future kingdom is whole and perfect, 
maybe we don't have shoelaces, so it doesn't matter if you actually can't tie up your shoelaces. Or maybe human speech is actually an accommodation that God gave to us in a fallen world. Perhaps mm -hmm. actually the way we're meant to communicate with each other is mind to mind and that that will be restored to us in the future kingdom. And so to say, if you can't speak here, your speaking will be restored there, I think is equally a limited view of what the future kingdom actually brings. Mm -hmm. So I think at both ends of those arguments, there's there's too much of a human perspective there on yeah. what that future kingdom looks like so mm -hmm. to say oh i i think this is important i will have to keep this i think is as dangerous dare i say as saying well if you can't count and you can't speak well that absolutely has to be healed i think whatever the future kingdom looks like it's something that completely transcends and revolutionizes you know the place of humanity what our body is what it looks like what it can do and I, I think the things that we call disabling in this world won't necessarily be the things that are disabling. And so to say they mm. need to be gotten rid of probably makes no sense in comparison to what the future kingdom actually is. So I don't think that's a, a viable argument as well. I, I guess at the end of the day, I don't have all the answers clearly, but mm. I say to people, I think from a pastoral perspective, I encourage people not to make assumptions one way or the other. You know, if we go mm. for something like Psalm 139 that talks about God knitting together people in their wombs, some people find that passage really comforting. You know, I have a disability, but God knew what he was doing when I was in utero and this is the way he made me. But some people look at that passage and say, well, why did God do that? Because I actually don't want this disability. Or some people think... Oh, I'm so looking forward to being healed in the future kingdom. I, I'm so glad I'll get to be out of this wheelchair in the future kingdom. But other people like my deaf friend say, I wonder what Jesus signs like in the future kingdom. And, and so I guess it's about, from a pastoral perspective, being willing again to be in relationship with people, not making assumptions, not just throwing those bland statements of, oh, don't worry, it'll be gone in the future kingdom without actually knowing people's situation. Perhaps they're desirous of that, but perhaps they're not. Um, and so, yeah, not making those assumptions about what we think it'll look like when actually it completely transcends, I think, what our concepts could possibly be. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's where I would tend to go is be in relationship with people, understand mm. their circumstances, know yeah. that they might find it hard and they might find it encouraging or they might not. They might be happy with who they are. But but I don't think just saying, well, if it's important to you, God will keep it, is mm -hmm. probably the solution to that one. Yeah. yeah, so there's some really interesting stuff in the church fathers, you know, who talk about resurrected bodies and they tried mm -hmm. to grapple with some of these questions and, you know, some of them who would say things like, okay, let's just solve this problem. We will all be 33-year-old Mediterranean men when we get to yeah. the future kingdom, you know, yeah. because that just solves this problem about what age you are when you die mm -hmm. or what disabilities you have. It's a very simple solution to the entire, <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. You know, completely makes sense for the rest of us, you know, white women. And we feel really comfortable with being, you know, restored to something completely different. Um, yeah. But in the same way that that does make us feel awkward, if that's not our perspective, that can be the experience of people with disability as well. If we say, yeah, don't yeah. worry, you will be like me in the future <clears throat> kingdom. Wow, that is such a narrow and naive perspective. And I think mm. that's what's really limited 
because I think all of our assumptions around disability are around physical ability and intellectual ability. Um, mm. And so we think you can't be in heaven with this physical deficit or this intellectual deficit when actually the primary thing that the New Testament focuses on is, is character and being like Jesus doesn't mm. talk about physical or intellectual disabilities at all. So what's the thing that will be most healed it is us as fallen, broken human beings who will be restored in our um, in our status as being, you know, a little lower than the angels, a little lower than God, and being in perfect relationship with God again. Um, that's the focus, I think, of the New Testament. Over will you will you be a, a size six, you know, and yeah. be able to fit into skinny jeans, or will you be a wheelchair user or not? Mm. Yeah, it, it seems like. Um... The, the kind of the 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 word disorder gets used a lot amongst Catholic theologians, in particular, to describe a lot of different issues, you know, um, with humanity. <clears throat> and one of the things I've really appreciated about that is is uh, when I've when I've when I've had conversations about that is how it's a word that gets used for all of us, mm. not just you guys or you gals. <laughs> it's like we yeah. have disorder, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's interesting uh, to think about. No, it's, I think it's really helpful. Um, and again, you know, I think, gosh, there's so much in Amos's work that I love. And I mean, I like, I don't know a percentage, but like 95% of his book, I'm just like, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And then it was like, what? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, but, I, but I think the reason why I found his work really helpful particularly amongst charismatics and pentecostals is because there is some there's some things that concern me a bit about the charismatic tradition when it comes to healing and um like i've been at conferences where i've heard people say things like hey you know we need to go drive to the mall and go and stand uh at the handicap parking mm. and then all of those uh quote unquote i heard the word cripple used one time um in this environment uh and find them and then heal them and mm -hmm. I, you know everything inside of me was like like i i what uh did i just hear that um and so i've heard that at numerous conferences there's a there's a vibe so i live i live in a community that's 30 minutes away from bethel um you know the very popular pentecostal neo-pentecostal hyper-pentecostal um church movement. And there's a lot of things that I like and, and, and appreciate. So I'm not at all trying to be like, oh, they're terrible. But I, I'm. it's interesting, though, because all over our community, there's people who have these stories of, you know, being with somebody who had a um, clear disability and someone walks up to them and does exactly what you, your friend mm -hmm. experienced in South Africa, where it's like ignore their personhood jump right to their identity being completely and solely wrapped up in that disability and then in you know do you we're going to heal you now so there's a lot of a lot of really hurt people um mm. from that you know and i think about that too with my sister you know where it's like um and this is where i think amos's work becomes really helpful yeah um because it's like there's more to my sister than just this thing um yeah. and, it, and it's kind of, it's actually offensive to um, think that there's something inherently wrong with her because of her d uh, Down syndrome. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's like uh, really, you're treating people as projects. I mean, there's just a lot of bad things about it. It's like, it's not very missional. Yeah. It's not very incarnational. It's not very, it's not what Jesus did. Can we just stop it? So 
how how like i guess the you know kind of like how we can do better you know we can maybe end this um podcast with you what does it look like and give us a vision for how can churches how can pastors how can church leaders and how can just individual followers of jesus be better at um being welcoming being um intentional um and then being inclusive you know and and seeing the church through the lens that would not have any problem with your husband's uh, brother, right? Mm. Um, yep. Serve in the church um, and welcome people with the beautiful smile that Down syndrome individuals, people have. Um, they're the friendliest human beings I, that you'll ever meet in the world, right? I mean, there's just, what's it look like? How can we get there? Um, you know, what's, what's the way forward for mm. the church? Yeah, I think it taps into some of what we were talking about earlier for me. I I think that, yeah, we have these assumptions about someone's ability to respond to faith based on, you know, intellectual cognition. You know, and I think about some of the people that I know who have developmental disabilities, for example. I, I have um, one woman that I know who lives in this tiny little bedsit, a housing commission, uh, a state unit. You know, she's very poor. Um but I went to her house one day in the midst of COVID, I took some groceries over to her and she said, I want to show you my house. And it's this tiny little, only a couple of rooms, you know, and she said, I'm so lucky to live here, Louise. You know, look at this amazing place that I live in. And she said, somebody gave me these laminated um, posters that have got Bible verses on them and I got to stick them on my wall. And mm -hmm. she said, I love the people in my church and I've got great friends who care about me and I've got family who love me I'm just so blessed I'm just so incredibly blessed and I often think wow she really challenges me because here she is someone with an intellectual disability she speaks slowly not a lot of people have time for her you know in the world that she lives in in the in when she goes to work or she's in public places people ignore her and overlook her and yet she is this beautiful example of what it means to live the Christian life she doesn't read or write very well yeah, as I said, she speaks slowly, but she is this beautiful demonstration of the gospel, just loves people, is so grateful, um, just exudes this thankfulness that I think people I know with 10 times the amount that she has don't have, you know. And so um, if we think that demonstrating the gospel or being a Christian is limited by our intellectual capacities, you really need to spend some time with, you know, people with intellectual disabilities and they'll definitely challenge you in that. You know, there's another woman I know who um, she had a new dress on one night when I met her and she said, do you like my dress, Louise? I think I look beautiful in this dress. Mm. And I said, it looks amazing. I love this. And I thought, gosh, I can't imagine... Uh, looking in the mirror and feeling that self-confident that she, as she does, you know, she just has this mm -hmm. knowledge of herself as someone who's created in God's image, who is beautiful and special and important. And yet our society says she's the one with the disability and I'm the able-bodied one. And yet look at the way that she can demonstrate God's character mm -hmm. and his love in a way that puts me to shame because I don't have that same sense of, you know, self-worth that I can see demonstrated in her. So I think the boxes that we use to categorise people's faith um, and what it looks, looks like to be a Christian, we need to challenge those, you know, and mm. th there's no, um, yeah, there's no intellectual um, 
barrier that's going to stop someone from being able to be in relationship with God. If we're created in his image, we're created to be in relationship with him, nothing can stop that. So someone might be able to struggle to communicate in the way that we as humans need to communicate, but it doesn't mean they can't communicate with God or that God can't communicate with them. Mm. So I think we need to take that out of a little tiny, tiny box that we've put it into you know you know coming to faith looks like saying the sinner's prayer and mm-hmm. you know being able to explain what atonement is or something that's yeah. what we think <laughs> salvation actually is you know yeah. um there's a lot of people not, out there they can't explain the atonement and they've been studying <laughs> theology for a really long time so yeah i know right yeah that's exactly right so you know he, yeah we have this expectation this is what it has to be for you to say that you're a christian and i think we need to challenge that because i think there'd be some people who demonstrate these godly characteristics um that i know who have intellectual disabilities who demonstrate that and display that with far greater grace and character and spirit than people i know with you know significantly higher iqs or greater mm. physical abilities or anything else so mm. i think we need to be challenged in what we think it means to be a christian and to live a godly life and the relationship we see between physical ability and intellectual ability um you know and 1 corinthians 12 and the image of the body of christ is a great example of that to think of all of the members of the body all playing their part but all equally involved and all equally as valuable you know paul takes this image from the ancient world where the body was represented in a hierarchical way you know some parts were important and some parts weren't and Mm. paul revolutionizes that to say no in the body everyone has a role to play Mm -hmm. and every part relies on every other part so we're created interdependent and so if that's the case we we can't pride ourselves on being Um, more independent than someone with a disability who is more dependent because God created us to be interdependent. So independency Mm. is not actually something we should be so proud of in ourselves because it's not a feature or marker of what it means to live a godly life. And yet we discourage others because they're dependent or we look down on them because they're dependent on a carer or support workers or whatever it might be. So Mm. I think we need to reframe what belonging in the body of Christ looks like, our value as members, contributing members in the body of Christ. And, you know, thinking about it from the charismatic perspective too, mm-hmm. part of what Paul says in the body of Christ is that our role is to reveal the spirit to one another. Mm-hmm. And so someone with an intellectual disability doesn't have any less capacity then to be revealing the spirit to one another through using your gifts and serving the community of the body of Christ. So your Mm. physical capacity, your intellectual capacity doesn't limit your ability to actually do that. That's crazy when you think about it. That's absolutely incredible to think, wow, we really need to be supporting people with disabilities to find their gifts and use them in the church because it serves one another as we do that, that we can serve one another in interdependence, uh, in service to God and be helping to reveal and show the spirit to one another as we do Mm. that. So rather than excluding people, we're actually yeah, we're missing out by not helping them find their gifts and being able to serve. Um, Mm. So it's not just them, but us. We all miss out when people aren't being able to contribute effectively in the body. So it takes some reframing. It takes us rethinking what we think Mm. a Christian looks like and the markers of that Christian faith. But I Mm -hmm. think the New Testament has great grounds 
for us to actually be doing that, to be rethinking those things. So for me, I always encourage church communities to do um, what I would call a community audit, which is putting a questionnaire out in your church community around disability. Mm. A lot of churches I know do this around International Day of People with Disabilities, which is the 3rd of December. And so community audit means you just ask questions, you know, do you have a disability? Does someone in your family have a disability? Um, uh, do you think we're catering well for people with disabilities in our church? Mm. You know, if not, why not? Uh, and every church that I've worked with that's done this audit has found it yields really helpful information. People that you might not ever have thought um, identify as having a disability will tell you that information, you know, that they have a mental health condition or a sensory disability. Uh, and so it gives you a starting point to start working towards an in inclusion then because someone can say to you, actually, we've never been able to go on the church camp because you always go somewhere that's not accessible. And the church leadership might have always gone, well, they won't want to come because their kid's in a wheelchair. But no one's ever had that conversation. Mm, and so doing that community yeah. order is a great place to actually start dialogue. Um, what are we doing well? What are we not doing so well, you know? Mm. And then I think the second part of that is forming an inclusion committee in your church then once you've identified a few things that you can start on um, then start to move forward on actually making a difference in your church community by addressing some of those things making sure that the font is large enough on your powerpoint slides making mm. sure you've got large print bibles and large print bulletins these are super easy things to start with yeah. And as you start working on them, as you start those conversations with people connected with your church community, then you will you'll have a trajectory. It'll give you a pathway where you can start moving forward. And there's always going to be big things. Do you have a ramp? Um, do you have accessible yeah. parking? But there's also mm -hmm. so many other small things that you can start doing. Do you have pictures of all of your church leadership on your website, for example? Do you have pictures of where you go into kids' church so that a family who have a child with a disability coming for the first time can show that child and to lower their stress and anxiety levels before they actually get there? You know, are there mm -hmm. signs that clearly mark where the accessible entrance is or where the accessible parking is? Stuff like that is super simple and super cheap but it's just a starting point to get you moving and so that your community know and those around you in your local community know you're dedicated to wanting to make a difference in disability and inclusion and that you're an inclusive space and that you're open to wanting to say, I don't have all the answers, but I'm happy to help you think through what we can do to serve you better as an individual mm. or as a family living with disability. Well, that's genius. Um, I just was thinking about too, you know, another, uh, you know, in, in the missional incarnational ministry yeah. world, um, there was the idea of peace, you know, and it's this idea of trying to find someone in the community, you know, it's, it's based off the new Testament, right? Yes. Apple, but it's find somebody in the, in the community who can kind of connect you and, uh, you know, that, and that's toward the mission of God. And to me, like there is no better group of people than people with down syndrome that are in that role like i cannot tell you it's it's amazing to me that in communities everybody will know a certain person who has down syndrome because they're so friendly they're so you know inquisitive generally and they they just make friends everywhere and so it's interesting i i had to change my whole framework when i thought about mission in the context of like you know we talk about including people in the life of the church for the benefit of the church but also including people with disabilities in the life of God's mission. And, and yeah. I mean, sure. It's like really, really amazing. Um, okay. So 
Thank you so much. Uh, we've covered like everything. I think we fixed it. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Yay. Yeah. So for for uh, for anybody listening uh, and, and watching this on YouTube, um, you know, you have you're on Twitter and that's a way for people to uh, to, you know, hear your or read your thoughts, your tweets. Uh, you also have a lot of your work is available on the academia, um, their website. There's a link there, too. Um, but if people want to stay connected, are there other ways to stay connected? And then secondarily, if a church were like wanting to hire you as a consultant, because um, I know you've done that for um, those Anglicans out there, could, <laughs> could they do that? And what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah. So, I mean, if people go to my academia account, they can easily message me through that. If that's not going to work, obviously, Twitter is a fine way to do that. That's the other I way, I just, yep, I just sent you a tweet. Like, that's hey, exactly what you did. <laughs> get, on my, get on my podcast. That's exactly right. The other way to get in touch is um, through email. I'm more than happy for people to email. Uh, so it's my name, Louise Gosbell, at Mac, M-A-C, .edu.au and I'm more than happy to talk to people. I've just finished writing a handbook for the Sydney Anglicans on mm -hmm. uh, disability inclusion, which is something that's going to be launched um, in April for the Sydney Anglicans here. And so, um, yeah, I've had some interest already from other church communities in Australia thinking about what they can do to put similar documents together for individual churches or denominations. Uh, yeah, but I've done a lot of training for church communities around disability. It's what I'm definitely passionate about. Yeah. So I'm more than happy to hear from people. Great. Yeah. So for those of you listening, pastors, leaders, uh, highly recommend um, your your work. And um, yeah, it'd be great to, you know, have have people contact you if they have more questions or more uh, more things they're working through. Um, well, hey, it's been an honor, a delight. Um, you know, I really, I really, um, it's like, this has been such a fun thing for me. I'm like, oh, this is more about me than any of the people who listen. Uh, but uh, thank you for your time. And um, hopefully we can do this. I'd love to have you uh, on again to talk about other issues that are related to, you know, your, your scholarship and your work. Um, but thank you so much. And uh, wow, I, I'm just so grateful for your your wisdom and your, your so many great stories and, and anecdotal evidence from your own life. It's super helpful. So thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Luke. It's been really great. Awesome.